It is now my distinct pleasure to present the 2020 International Emmy Founders Award to Governor Andrew Cuomo, with a little help from some of my fellow New Yorkers. To my governor, the governor of Empire State, Andrew Cuomo. Congratulations, Andrew, on your much-deserved Founders Award. Governor Andrew Cuomo, you are the man. I wish I could say that my daily COVID presentations were well choreographed, scripted, rehearsed, or reflected any of the talents that you advance. They didn't. They offered only one thing, authentic truth and stability. But sometimes that's enough. That was what millions of viewers got to watch last November when New York Governor Andrew Cuomo was awarded an Emmy, the highest honor in the television business, for his press conferences on the COVID pandemic. At the time, Cuomo was riding high, seen by many as a blunt-speaking, no-spin truth-teller, a stark contrast to the prevarications and often ridiculous spin coming out of the Trump White House. But now, Cuomo's leadership and his commitment to the truth has come under sharp scrutiny. The New York Attorney General has concluded that his administration undercounted by as much as 50% the number of New Yorkers who died from COVID in nursing homes. And a top aide has admitted health officials concealed key data about nursing home deaths. On top of everything else, a Democratic lawmaker has said Cuomo, in an angry tirade, threatened to ruin his career if he didn't take back his remarks critical of the governor's performance. We'll talk to that legislator, Ron Kim of Queens, and we'll talk to John Daly, a New York plaintiff's lawyer who has been bird-dogging Cuomo's performance on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Iskoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So this falls under the category, how the mighty have fallen. We all remember, uh, you and I remember, back nearly a year ago when Cuomo was getting all this great press for his press conferences about COVID. People were talking about how he should be the Democratic candidate for president. Never mind the primaries going on. Just replace them all with Andrew Cuomo. He's the guy for the moment. He's the guy we need. And now he is in the midst of incredible criticism and controversy as more and more evidence mounts that he may well have botched the COVID issue through allowing all these nursing home deaths. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this. But the first thing that occurs to me uh, before we get to the substance of the charges themselves, I think there's a way in which uh, Trump's presence on the scene, you know, when he was president, obscured so much other stuff that was going on out there and didn't get the kind of attention uh, that maybe it should have. And that's the sort of more run of the mill uh, malfeasance or uh, corruption. We don't know yet that this uh, this amounts to corruption. But there's a, a sense in which with uh, Trump being gone and his uh, Twitter feed being silenced, 
that the kinds of stories that we used to cover, you know, as part of our regular daily diet of skullduggery <laughs> is re- very much back on the agenda. I mean, you got this story involving Cuomo. You've got Ted Cruz going to Cancun during a Texas uh, weather crisis. There's something almost comforting about it um, and and healthy, uh, I, I would say, which is yeah, to well, say Well, look, I, I don't think we should call it healthy when we're talking about thousands of people who died from COVID in well, nursing homes. Right. I'm talking about in, in terms of our civic mission. Right. That these are substantive issues. No question. No question about it. We're not it. going crazy about tweets. We're looking at actual performance in right. government or lack of performance. I should point out that just as we started taping this uh, podcast, Cuomo finished up a press briefing in Albany in which he responded to some of the criticism. Let's take a listen. I'm not going to let New Yorkers be lied to. I'm not going to let you hurt New Yorkers by lying about what happened surrounding the death of a loved one. Uh, I see that as my job, and I'm going to do it aggressively. Because you have no right to lie. And you have no right to hurt people. I don't care if it's your politics. You can't lie and cause pain to people who are innocent bystanders to all of this. Uh, So I'm going to take on the lies and the unscrupulous actors, especially when they cause pain and damage to New Yorkers. I should have done it before. And I should have done it more aggressively. Before we get to our guests, and uh, they've got a lot of really interesting things to say about Cuomo, I want to take you back to something only you and I will probably remember, but it uh, is a reminder of how long Cuomo has been on the scene. Uh, was it when he was HUD secretary? Uh, yes, it involve, indeed. Uh... <laughs> I've got here a copy of uh, Uncovering Clinton a book um, that I wrote more than 20 years ago. Still on sale on <laughs> Yeah, you can still get it on uh, Amazon. And if you remember, while I was like, uh, you know, pursuing that story about the president and the intern and uh, the uh, sexual harassment lawsuit he was facing and, you know, all the many elements that led to the uh, impeachment of Bill Clinton, I was getting hounded by our boss, Ann McDaniel, to actually finish a different story. So I will, I will just read uh, these few sentences from Uncovering Clinton. In any case, that week I was under a bit of pressure from my bureau chief, Ann McDaniel. After a year of scandal of Whitewater and Webb Hubble and campaign finance and Paula Jones, she wanted me to finish a story on an entirely different subject. Andrew Cuomo, the secretary of HUD. Cuomo was a rising political star. Washington insiders were talking about him as a possible running mate with Al Gore in the year 2000. A few months earlier, he had come to lunch at Newsweek and talked about a campaign to crack down on public housing developers implicated in fraud and corruption. Cuomo was subtly portraying it as an act of political courage. A lot of these developers were big Democratic contributors, and he was already getting some heat from members of his own party on Capitol Hill. McDaniel thought it might make an interesting story. Uh, I should point out that I never actually finish that story. Um, So it (laughs) remains unwritten to this day. But that was a moment when um, Cuomo was uh, being portrayed by his spin doctors, 
yeah. led by Chris Lehane. I was going to say one remember. of those. Is one of those spin doctors yeah. was Chris Lehane, one of the masters of disaster from back in the Clinton era, right? Uh, al- along with uh, what was the other guy's name? Uh, uh, Mark Fabiani. Mark, Mark Fabiani. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should have Lehane on this on Skullduggery. He knows. <laughs> yeah, a th- well. He knows a thing or two. Yeah. And anyway, they were trying to burnish Cuomo's image by portraying him as a uh, fighter of corruption uh, and uh, pay for play uh, activities within the government. As And as we'll hear during this podcast, those are some of the very same allegations that are being made against Cuomo right now um, in his handling of the nursing home issue. The one other thing I wanted to say is, you know, everyone knows that you know, politics in Albany are bare knuckled, um, and he's been practicing this kind of politics for more than ten years, uh, and was under investigation for it by Preet yeah. Bharara when yeah. he was the U.S. Yeah. Attorney in the Southern right. District. Remember? But the, what we're about to hear in this conversation with the uh, Assemblyman Kim is uh, the very, very aggressive tactics that Cuomo uses uh, in going after people who who oppose him. And, you know, you may have had these experiences. I certainly remember, you know, one evening, my cell phone ringing, um, and we had we had written some item about Cuomo in Periscope. And it wasn't Cuomo himself, uh, but it was one of his top aides. Uh, I don't even remember what the item was, something that scuffed his image a little bit. And man, the tirade, the berating that I got uh, from this Cuomo um, lieutenant was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Uh, so this is something that uh, a kind of politics um, that uh, he's been practicing for a very long time. And I dare say it's not about to change. Right. And it's something that Ron Kim, our first guest, can, I'm sure, relate to. So um, let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us Assemblyman Ron Kim from Queens, New York, Um, a man who has been much in the news over the last week. Um, Assemblyman Kim is the first Korean-American ever elected to the New York State Legislature. Um, Assemblyman, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's nice to meet you. You uh, have made quite a splash uh, over the last week recounting your phone conversation with Governor Andrew Cuomo. So can you just set us up exactly how this phone call came about and to the best you can recall exactly what the governor said to you? Sure. Uh, This was the day after six lawmakers, including myself, the chairs of the relevant committees overseeing nursing homes, had a private two-hour meeting with the governor's top-level staff. Um, it was That was in Albany, and everyone was in a Zoom meeting like this one in that meeting. In that meeting, his top aide, the state secretary, uh, Melissa DeRosa, in the middle of that meeting, implicated his administration, her administration, and his administration by admitting that they withheld data and life-saving home uh, nursing home information because they feared the information would be somehow used against them politically. Um, Excuse me, they withheld it from the legislature, right? No, from the Department of Justice because it was politicized. The way that she, she framed it, uh, there was a political football that was going on. Donald Trump was tweeting out that that Andrew Cuomo was doing this and doing that, and Department of Justice launches 
an, an investigation and we froze. We didn't, we have to, we couldn't give anything because they were going to weaponize that information against us politically. Now, there might be a political reality, but that's not a legal reality. Meaning, doesn't matter if the judge or the prosecutor is mean to you. If they give you a fine, if they tell you to comply, you still have to comply. Um, so you don't comply with the Department of Justice. She, you know, admitted to potentially obstructing justice in that minute. There was a text. As soon as she said it, the chairs were like, did she just commit obstruction of justice? Like we were stunned, but we heard, and, and into, coming into, I mean, the transcripts are online. So you can read word for word uh, exactly how it went down. They were explaining the delay of the information. Delay, why did it take seven months? Uh, we've been asking for this since August. What happened? You know, and, the, and my colleagues were kept interrupting. Like, it's not good enough. Like, I'm getting hurt politically. What is what happened, et cetera. And then that's when the secretary jumped in. And she literally said, this is the truth. Take it or leave it. And then she laid out what happened. So that, that happened. And then that news broke the next day. Uh, there was about... I guess 35 people or so even more because it's a Zoom call. Who knows who's listening in? Um, and then that came out the next day. I gave a statement um, to the New York Post reporter who broke that story. That night, um, that reporter took my statement and went to the governor's office. What are your thoughts? And immediately, the governor's people called the speaker, um, my assembly, and said, this is... And literally the words that they used in that moment, um, the intermediaries, is the governor, uh, Melissa De Rossell, is freaking out. You have to do something. Can you know what? Like, and I came to my own conclusion. So the speakers, people, they didn't ask me. They were very clear. I'm not asking you to do anything. I don't, I'm, not, I'm asking you to change or modify whatever. This is what they're telling us. And in that moment, because I knew the newspaper already had um, like two sets of recordings, they already you know cited what she said. So I knew that my quote wasn't part of the story. That they're running the story with or without me. But in that moment, I felt genuinely bad for the secretary because she shouldn't be the one taking all the burden of this. It's the governor. So I actually asked. You know, I have a series of texts with the reporter. Can you can you take my statement out? Can you retract my statement? I don't want to be included in that article. Um, and but. It was too late. It got printed. And within, this is when the call came. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm kind of That's setting okay. up the stage for you. Tell us, okay. tell us what, tell us what okay. you were doing. Tell us what you were doing when, when you get the call. Okay. So I'm, this is my, yeah, this is my apartment. So I was about five feet away from here. Uh, just around 7.50, 8 o'clock is time for my three girls. So I'm getting, still, I'm getting the water and all that ready. My wife is right by next to me nearby. Um, and I get a call on my phone and, uh, it's a generic governor's line. Like I get these from his staff, right? It's a 518, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was like, Oh, it must be like the press office, whatever. So I pick up and, uh, there's an operator there. So hold on. I got the governor on the line for you. And I'm just sitting, I'm sitting right there. I was, and I'm like, Oh, he's never called me before. Um, I, I've had dinner with them and I've had done various things with people never call me on the phone. I was like, Governor, and there was like a silence. Uh, I I said, you know, Governor first, and then and then he he went on to uh, spend ten minutes uh, basically threatening my career, 
and ordering me to issue a statement uh, that would be used to cover the state secretary. So, you know, I don't want to go too into the details uh, of the call, um, but Como threatened to to ruin uh, my career if I did not issue that statement to cover for Melissa. How did he threaten to ruin your career? What what were the words that he used? I mean, I'd rather not go into the specifics of the words. There is a now verified federal investigation, and Senator Gillibrand just even confirmed it earlier today, uh, this morning. So all that information will you know will be submitted to the federal government. I'm assuming as soon at some point. But generally speaking, I'll, there's some clear words that I would. I'll share. So he basically framed this conversation, what he could do to me, right? Like you haven't seen this side of the anger of me. You haven't seen my anger. The exact word he used was wreck. And he would, he, and then he outlined what he would do next. Uh, I would tell the public, well, you're a bad, bad, you know, member I would do. And then the consequences followed. And then like, and then you would be ruined. Like there was a, there was, that's the, how he framed it. At this time, um, you know, I interjected. This was about a 10-minute call, right? So I interjected and tried to explain, Governor, I actually tried to retract that statement earlier. Like, because even before he called, when the article hit, I was in the mindset that I actually felt very bad for Melissa. Not the governor, but Melissa. So because I'm human, like, I don't know her. I'm not friends with her, but, like, she shouldn't carry all that weight. Um, So I was even thinking, what can I do to be helpful? So I tried to explain that side um, and then he cut me off, you know, and then he proceeded to just uh, berate me, you know, for, for, and then, and then belittled me, he asked me if I were a lawyer and I said, no. And then he tried to explain what I heard yesterday um, saying, you didn't, you heard that the federal, we have to do the federal government inquiry first, and then we'll get to the state. Um, this is what you will see. You want to make this right. This is what you have to say in the statement. And is in his exact words, do it tonight, not tomorrow. Tonight, not tomorrow. He repeated it twice. Um, and that's pretty much the gist of the conversation. But Mr. Kim, let me let me ask you this. Um, you you have been quoted saying that that uh, the call was um, traumatizing. It's been reported that you uh, you you actually hired a lawyer. Explain wh- uh, why uh, you, you you clearly didn't just see that as as bluster or the governor blowing off steam. You used the word traumatizing. So what were you thinking um, in that moment and after the call? And why did you hire a lawyer? Yeah. So the impact. I mean, my wife was there, so she heard you know, half of it, uh, and 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 the words that was yelling. So she heard words like wrath and who do you think you are and various other phrases. Um, but she, and I looked over and she was pale. Like, and so I tried to shield her. I kind of walked away into the room. Um, and as soon as the conversation was over, I told her, you know, the governor just um, threatened to destroy my career. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's exactly what I told her right after the phone conversation. And then she was literally shaking. Um, for about two hours. And, and I don't want to go too much like, you know, but it was, it, that was um, the impact that that night, like she didn't sleep, um, you know, and we got, and, and, we, and we fought because she, you know, she blamed me and, you know, she was scared. And, 
she, you know, she was yelling, like, what did you do to this? Can you just please stop uh, what you're doing? What are you doing to our family? Um, so we, that was, I think, and I had this conversation with other uh, mediums, but that's the moment when I always feel emotional, just when I visualize her shaking for almost, you know, a couple of hours. Um, but it was also Lunar New Year. Uh, I, don't, yeah, I don't know if you followed. The Lunar New Year, uh, yeah. Yeah, our holiday. So next day was Lunar New Year. I got families. We're cooking and my parents are either a little bit sick. So she, we had to take care of them. Um, so we have a lot of things going on. Uh, so Friday uh, and then Saturday morning, you know, it's a long weekend for us. And we get a phone call. I get a series of phone calls um, from the governor directly about four times. Um, and then another four times by his staff. This is after the threatening phone call. Right. He's calling right. you again. But but you didn't take those calls, did you? You didn't. I didn't. I didn't take those calls. Why not? So before that, um, there was an effort um, again by the speaker's office. Followed up uh, after the phone call about an hour later, saying, "Oh, the governor's office called." about you possibly doing a statement. Uh, and they're very clear, we're not asking you to do it, we're just relaying the message, are you going to do something? And I asked, okay, because the governor specifically said, do the statement, let your people, speaker's office, draft it. He said that. Um, so I asked him, what does that look like? What, what do you want me to say? And they texted me a statement to my phone. And as soon as I read it, I said, no. Like, I, this is a clear lie. This is, you're telling me that, I, like, I saw a crime the other day and you're telling me that I didn't see a crime. Like, this is a lie. You're implicating me to the cover-up. And I was like, no, this is like, this is, I can't do that. Um, and that was, that was like done. I told them, tell them no. I left that. And Saturday morning, two days later, uh, you get these text, voicemails, and a total of like eight phone calls in a row. Um, and I didn't pick up. Um, but I did contact a lawyer after that because I felt threatened and I didn't know, I didn't want to be implicated. Um, I'm not a lawyer. So I heard an attorney on the following Monday and I let the governor's office know if you want to talk to me about this, please contact Mr. So-and-so at this number. Were you worried that, that there may be an, an effort to frame you in some way? I mean, he talked about ruining your your career well, coming he, after he made, you. No, he made good on that word. He came out at his press conference Wednesday, right? And then he spent like, I don't know, 12 minutes uh, berating me and trashing me and, and saying that I'm corrupt, that I have took money and I took all this stuff and, and I did all this illegal stuff. He did that at his press conference. He made good yeah. on that threat. Assemblyman, did you happen to listen uh the night that um, Cuomo got his uh, Emmy Award for leadership for his press conferences. I did not. Uh, there, there's a clip from that that I'd like to play you and okay. and, and get your reaction to. Um, there was a series of celebrities, Spike Lee, Robert De Niro, uh, Rosie Perez, who were all praising Cuomo, what a great job he did during the COVID pandemic. And um, Ben Stiller also uh, took uh, some numerous ribs at uh, the governor uh, saying uh, it was really his brother who should be getting the Emmy because he's in television and a few other jokes. And Cuomo had a response to that that I think is worth listening to in light of your phone call. Eric, can you play um, 
what uh, Cuomo had to say that night. I appreciate the humor from my friends in the video, and I take it in good stride. And to Ben Stiller, whose teasing took liberal license, testing the boundaries of the quorum in good taste, I only say New York tough means one more thing. It means, Ben, I know where you live. I thought of that after um, uh, reading about your phone call, and I just wonder what your um, reaction might be. Uh, I mean, are you, are you, are you, I mean, that was, are you, I'm I mean, sorry. he was joking. He was sure, joking, he was right. Joking. So, so, I mean, I'm a little confused. Are you, Michael, implying that he wasn't serious in my phone call when he made those threats? Is that, no, I'm, I'm I like, was uh, suggesting there may have been a germ of truth when in, oh, in oh, his well, joke okay. uh, about uh, okay. how he approaches uh, people who criticize him. Oh, so, uh, right. So he, so he was an ounce of truth of, of how it was leaked in that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I stop watching his stuff. Uh, so, look, you mentioned there's a federal investigation. Have you been contacted by the FBI or federal prosecutors? And if not, and they do, are you uh, prepared to testify? Of course. I mean, I'm prepared to comply um, and you know, spend as much time handing over whatever evidence that they want. But Senator Gillibrand, uh, this morning, she confirmed that there is an investigation. So, I expect. Uh, any of us to be contacted very soon. But you have not yet been contacted. Or, uh, I mean, even if I were, I would not feel comfortable uh, talking about uh, a federal investigation. So, Okay. I mean, I guess the, the question is, is if this is an obstruction of justice investigation in part, um, whether that phone call would be a part of the obstruction? I would, I would think so. Uh, again, I'm not an attorney, but I have a very good attorney that is uh, working with me uh, throughout the this process regarding that and also a number of other things. I mean, this isn't the only part of what we think uh, should be investigated. I mean, if you look at, I discussed this very consistently, including at the meeting, handing out you know legal immunity um, to nursing home executives. Uh, at the peak of the pandemic. And this is a very important point. Um, and I'll come back, Michael, to your other stuff. Because if we had the real-time data, which they were holding onto, we would have had the argument to repeal that immunity. Instead, because we didn't see the whole picture, we were only able to uh, repeal partial uh, in July, my legislation. Um, so there's this is one clear example of what we could have done differently in terms of policy if they share the data in real time. Um, but they made a choice to not do that. And I think all those decisions need to be investigated. Who gave him the language of that immunity? The industry came out and even said and bragged in a press release that we got this done uh, for nursing homes and hospitals. And they we're going to take this to Washington. We're going to take this to other states. This is the gold standard for corporate legal immunity. So I think those are that's really some those are some of the tougher questions we need to get to the bottom of. And I hope that if there's a probe that we would investigate all those aspects. And Assemblyman uh, Kim, this this is personal for you beyond the experience you had being allegedly being threatened and berated by the governor. Right. I mean, first of all, you know, you are chair of the Assembly's Committee on on Aging, and you have been dealing with oversight of uh, the nursing home industry for us for some time. And also, you have you lost an uncle uh, to COVID in a nursing home, correct? Correct. Uh, Yeah, Daniel, thank you for bringing that up. 
Yeah, it is my job um, to investigate, right? As a chair of the aging, it's my job to ask the tough questions um, and protect older adults. That is literally what I'm supposed to be doing. And when I do that, and the closer we get to the truth, we are either being threatened, punished, or implicated to cover-ups. That is not a healthy process. And that's why so many of us, not only me, others are calling for repealing his you know, extraordinary powers, but going even further now, and members are talking about impeachment, because not, again, and people think this is all just vilifying the governor, but to me, it's really protecting the sanctity of our New York state legislature. We're supposed to be the checks and balance. We should be doing our jobs without feeling scared. There will be there will be retributions uh, by the executive. And this is the opportunity to do that and establish and reestablish our check and balance uh, in, in Albany. Do you believe the governor should be impeached? Uh, I, be- I believe there needs to be a thorough uh, investigation, but I did say that if there is enough evidence, we need to start the impeachment process. I sent the memo along with ten, nine other colleagues on Monday um, after his press conference that we need to take this measure. So I think there are other members now now, now there agree with it. We have a meeting um, next week, but as you but our Democratic um, conference in Albany, we have a lot of members, so it will take a little time to build that consensus. But every day, I think people are inching toward the impeachment process. When you say if there is enough evidence, just what from the evidence that's out there right now, what leads you to believe that we are inching towards an impeachment process? And uh, what more do you want to know? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like there are other colleagues uh, who chair different committees that are tasked to probe those deeper questions, like the ethics committee, judiciary committee. I'm very focused on the nursing home issue itself. Um, so I've been consistent on it and the chair of the aging. My work has primarily been what happened to the 15,000 people who died, what policies were passed that were wrong, and how do we go back and change those policies? I have opinions about it, um, but that's not my focus here. Like the, I, I trust my colleagues will provide um, the guidelines, what needs to, what kind of a commission, what kind of a framework do we need to proceed with such an impeachment type of process. But that's, you know, you know that, that takes away from the work that I've always been doing, which is trying to get justice for the 15,000 families who lost their loved ones. And right now we still have thousands of people who actually survived COVID with extra healthcare costs stuck in nursing homes that can't afford. So those are the type of things that that I'm very dedicated to right now. How much support in the legislature right now do you believe there is for an impeachment investigation? I, I know at least, at least, uh, I mean, I mean, the Republicans are all already fully there. There. <laughs> yeah, but. And we should remind people you are a Democrat. But. Well, uh, yeah, I'm a progressive socialist Democrat, yes. Um, and the Republicans, some I get along with, they were actually helpful. And I, I work very closely on this issue. They're in it for the right reasons. But others who came along late, they're politically driven. So I don't really tolerate them either. Um, but the people who are calling for impeachment consistently and for the right reasons, I would work with them, even though even if they're Republicans. 
Um, but in my conference, again, we have a very large conference. I think we have a hundred plus Democrats uh, and, and a wide variety of views. My, so 10, 20, 30, 50, how many would you say right now? I, I would say like probably like in the 25, 30s, you know, it's split, right? There's people that want to just take away his extra powers. And then the current powers he has, it expires April 30th. So there's a there's some people that say, just wait it out. Let it expire. Don't give it to him again. And then there's a group saying it's not enough. We have to impeach him. Um, otherwise, we're sending... Um, a message, and we're not protecting the integrity of the legislative body. Assemblyman Kim, since you had your experience with the governor, uh, have other elected office holders in in Albany um, reached out to you to say that uh, they've had similar experiences with Governor Cuomo? That those kinds of uh, very aggressive tactics. Yes, um, a number of people have texted or just. Uh, through Twitter, random uh, individuals, but also my colleagues who I know who've dealt with it, they've been reached out to by the governor's staff members uh, directly, um, like thanking not just me, but this whole revelation uh, because they feel like they've been harassed inside office and, 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 and fear retribution of speaking up. I'm sorry, people who work, people on the governor's staff? People who work in the administration, yes. Mm-hmm. So we know that people are are there and they're, they're admitting to it, but they're also very scared to speak up against the governor. Um, as I understand it, the, the the crux of the case against Cuomo uh, and and nursing homes dates back to March when he approved this immunity provision for nursing homes so they wouldn't get sued, and also made that fateful move uh, saying that um, uh, people who were COVID positive could go back into nursing homes from hospitals. That's right. Now, the governor has said he was following federal guidelines when he did that. I assume you believe he's wrong. Why is he wrong about that? Um, So the March 25th executive order um, is what you're referring to when he mandated, now we know, in total 9,000 COVID patients uh, to be transferred to nursing homes uh, in a span of two months, uh, almost 45 days. Um, Other states, 12 other states followed similar guidelines, but all of them repealed and some of them actually realized there was a mistake and they banned uh, COVID positive, untested COVID positives coming in from nursing homes. The governor was did not ban it. They, they, he took that, he left that mandate in the longest period in the entire country. And CDC even came out, we didn't tell you to do that. You did that on your own. And they made a calculus to do that just around the time when they gave out that blanket legal immunity. It was, which was given April 2nd in the budget last minute. It was snuck in there. Um, in the budget, which I voted against for other reasons, but it was snuck in there and the industry gave that language. There's a trail record of this um, to the governor's office and they put it in there. So if you think about what happened, right, this is like I saw it on the ground. This is what happened in Albany, but I was here, you know, trying to like get into the nursing homes because my constituents had moms and dads uh, who were exposed to COVID and desperate for answers, including my own family member who died of presumed COVID, they were, it was a clear disconnect because their nursing homes were telling the governor that we can't take COVID 
uh, positives. Half of our staff members are out because they got COVID already. And it was understaffed. There was they didn't have PPE. They're, they're crying to the governor. This is not a good move. You can't do it. And along somehow somewhere along that discussion, they got all right. Here's your legal immunity. Don't worry about it. And that is what needs to be exposed. Who made that call? How did that get in there? And I think that's something. Uh, that was such a fatal error because we're talking about an industry that's 64% for-profit, for-profit nursing homes in New York. That means they have a quarterly fiduciary duty to protect their shareholders' profits. And if they have a way to protect and not invest more than they have to, they would pick that route. And once they got a criminal and legal liability shield, they were incentivized to hire more. And that's exactly the report that we issued in May we looked at 20 states that has similar provisions, New York being the worst, and 76% of the deaths at that time came from the states that had legal shields uh, for corporations. So bottom line here, do you believe this was just a mistake by the governor in the all the, the, the confusion and, and, and horrors of what was going on with, uh, uh, with COVID? Or was there an element of political influence by the a special interest group that affected the governor's decision making on these issues? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. It's the, it's both. It, it is a mistake he made, but he made that mistake because he chose to listen to like three groups: um, the hospital association, the nursing lobbyist, and and Blackstone. He put Blackstone, a private equity firm. Uh, in charge of economic recovery, the, the senior advisor fund Blackstone to do that. Those are the company, those are the type of people that were making these decisions at the time. That's clearly a mistake. And it's clearly him listening to special interest groups and not the people or the workers that are suffering on the ground. I can't accept, right? To your point, there's no one knows, no one knew what's going on. People are dying everywhere. And I even said this at the time, we would have forgiven, we would have worked with him if he just readjusted, there, were mis- there was a mistake. This was a mistake. Let's figure out how to pivot and go to a different direction. He kept doubling down, tripling down, and to a point where all in one day, the nursing home data was surging and we had our, we had our rationale and reason to go differently. And then all of a sudden, it dropped by 50%. And then they were making the excuse that, oh, well, you know, the hospital debts shouldn't be counted with nursing home debts because there's a disconnect in the software. We can't put it together. This is what was revealed in the August hearing. So all of a sudden, New York is trending at number one, number two nursing debts. And then now they're number 35, 37, 38. The narrative is with the governor. We're doing well. We're protecting. Uh, you don't need to legislate. Every way, everyone go home and just stay with your families. That is what happened, and he needs to be accountable for that. Um, Assemblyman, I want to thank you uh, for sharing this with us. Uh, it's uh, an important story, and we will definitely want to stay on top of it with you. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. We are now joined by uh, John Daly, uh, the co-chair of the Nursing Home Litigation Task Force for the New York State Trial uh, Lawyers Association, somebody who has been tracking the way the Cuomo administration has handled COVID from the beginning. Uh, Mr. Daly, welcome to Skullduggery. 
great to be with you. So this is a story that uh, seems to be blowing up in New York State right now and obviously has national significance because of all the prominence that Governor Cuomo got for his handling of the COVID pandemic. We have now learned in the last few days that there is actually a criminal investigation by federal prosecutors in the Eastern District of Brooklyn into the Cuomo administration's handling of this. What do we know about that investigation, when it was launched, what specifically they're looking at? Uh, Well, if you look at what's been reported so far, the investigations seem to be centered around the Cuomo's administration and Department of Health's lack of transparency when it came to reporting the actual number of deaths in nursing homes in the state of New York during the uh, height of the pandemic back in March, April, May, and June. And the investigation is being launched not only by the Department of Justice and the FBI, but you also have uh, the prosecutors in the Eastern District looking into this. Uh, I think what's going to happen as this investigation moves forward is that it will go beyond just looking at why uh, the number of deaths was inaccurately reported. Uh, There have been numerous reports about the relationship between Governor Cuomo and the nursing home industry, specifically the the lobby groups uh, that have been uh, campaign contributors to the Democratic Party and to him for quite some time. And any real investigation, I believe, uh, should take a look at that relationship to see if any of the decisions that were made by him and I'll point to two specific decisions, uh, were, were done because favors were being paid back. What were those decisions that you're referring to? So you had, you had two significant decisions uh, that were made by the government. The first was the infamous March 25th directive, which required nursing homes in New York State to accept COVID-positive patients regardless of their COVID status. In other words, uh, any nursing home resident that was transferred to a hospital, whether they had a suspected case of COVID or whether they had a proven case of COVID, they had to be allowed to be readmitted into the facilities. And one would question, why why was that done? I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. The the other decision uh, or directive was the immunity uh, that the governor provided to the nursing homes, basically taking away any responsibility they may have had for uh, negligent, uh, care, negligent care or care that doesn't comport with the, the standard that the public health law requires. So if, if we take a look first at the March 25th directive and we ask ourselves, well, why would that directive have been, been put in place? Uh, the governor says it was put in place because he was following CDC guidelines that nursing home residents could not be discriminated against. So he took the word discrimination and expanded it greatly to mean that hospitals and nursing homes had to admit and readmit positive residents, regardless of the number of positive residents in any particular facility. Just breaking in, I assume an argument could be made when you're letting uh, COVID positive patients back into a nursing home, you're discriminating against the non-COVID positive patients who are already in that nursing home. 
Correct. And not only that, back then, if you remember, the, there was a significant lack of testing. There weren't uh, many tests available and testing was not being done. So it begs the question, since we had the USS Comfort in port uh, in New York Harbor, and we had the Javits Center that had been converted to a thousand bed facility, why weren't positive nursing home residents being sent there instead of being sent back to the nursing home they came from? Right. That's a good point. Uh, uh, but I assume, just to be clear about this, that part of uh, Governor Cuomo's argument is that at that time there was uh, so much fear of hospitals being overwhelmed that they had to triage uh, and they had to offload patients uh, from hospitals uh, to uh, deal with the capacity problems in hospitals. Yeah, that's definitely true. But as, as time went on, as we went from March into April into May into June, it was quite apparent that the, that hospital concern that they were going to be overrun uh, really didn't take place. And you had certainly the capacity at Javits, which by all accounts had very few patients throughout its existence as a facility. Uh, the Comfort had very few patients there. So you ask yourself, well, why weren't there at least some beds reserved for nursing home residents? And you certainly could support an argument that the nursing home owners and operators were very concerned about losing residents because every bed that's empty is lost revenue for the nursing home. So they're not being they were not being compensated when when those uh, patients left and went to hospitals. That's correct. Once, one, once a nursing home resident leaves a facility, the facility is no longer being paid. And that's a significant concern for the nursing home operator. And I think that played a huge role in the decision to allow these residents to come back in. And I think the argument that it was a CDC directive just does not hold water. Let me ask you about... Uh, I guess the stated rationale for withholding the numbers of deaths uh, that we heard, uh, you know, Governor Cuomo's secretary, Melissa DeRosa, who said that the reason was because of a Justice Department, and again, this is under the Trump administration, Justice Department investigation into all of this that uh, the Cuomo administration feared was going to be politicized. Do you, under do you understand? what that's about. I, I don't fully understand the reasoning, what they were really worried about specifically. Well, uh, it, it, it's hard to go inside the head of Melissa DeRosa, but certainly the conversation she had with the Democratic leadership, whereby her comments uh, to the assemblymen and, and senators were that the reason that the, the true information was withheld because they were concerned about the Trump administration launching an investigation that would put somehow the New York State Health Department at risk wasn't meant to be uh, heard by ears outside of that room because it makes uh, absolutely no sense. If you take a look at the at, at that in that during that period of time uh, when the New York State uh, Health Department head uh, Howard Zucker every day was reporting on the number of deaths. He was actually reporting a number that did not include deaths that occurred in hospitals. So if a resident was transferred from a nursing home to a hospital and died, that wasn't included as a nursing home death. As far as why Mr. Rosa was concerned about withholding the, the true information, it, it really makes no sense at all. If, if the 
Trump administration was going to launch an investigation, they were going to launch an investigation. So why were they so concerned about a higher number of deaths being reported? Why not just be honest about it? Could it possibly be that they felt somehow beholden to the nursing home operators and the nursing home institutions to try to make them uh, look better or to show but, better but, results? But here's, here's what I don't understand. Why, from the perspective of the nursing home operators, I mean, you know, people were dying in nursing homes uh, all over the country because this was a this was a virus that attacked elderly people who were most vulnerable. So is the is the suggestion here that they were afraid that they would get scrutiny that that people were dying not just because they had elderly patients who were vulnerable to COVID, but because of negligence? Yes. L- let's go back a little bit in, in time. Okay, it, back in uh, Governor Cuomo's predecessor. Uh, back in 2000, uh, and I believe it was in 2009, uh, David Patterson. He was a staunch, staunch supporter of the public health law and enforcement of the public health law. What that means is the rules that govern and the regulations that govern resident care and nursing homes, which are very specific and stringent in New York, were a priority for him. In fact, in 2009, he signed into law an amendment to the public health law that held a nursing home responsible if it negligently causes the death of a nursing home resident. Throughout Governor Cuomo's tenure, once he took over in 2011, he has not been a staunch supporter of oversight uh, of nursing homes. So as time went on and the COVID crisis hit, the problems that existed in nursing homes well before COVID, understaffing, lack of proper infection control, lack of enforcement of the regulations, all of those things contributed to the deaths because there was no preparation. Not to say anybody could have anticipated COVID, but certainly the nursing homes were aware that there were other airborne type diseases that could be spread. So when we take a look at problems that preexisted COVID, I think the the true number of deaths put a a spotlight uh, or could have put a spotlight on that. Hence, they wanted to tamp that number down. So let me just take you back to those critical decisions in March and the political influence of the nursing home industry that you say influenced Cuomo to do what he did. Uh, There were 2.3 million dollars in contributions from hospital and nursing home industry donors and their lobbying firms to Cuomo's campaign and Democratic State Party committees during his 2018 uh, re-election bid. Also, and this leapt out at me, one of those lobbying firms that was representing the Greater New York. Hospital Association is a firm called Bolton St. John's, which gave Cuomo's campaign $40,000. And the firm employs Georgia DeRosa, Joseph DeRosa, and Jessica DeVos, the father, brother, and sister of the aforementioned Melissa DeRosa, the secretary to the governor who made these comments. That kind of Leaps out. <laughs> uh, it, it sure does. And, uh, you know, back in 2018, uh, and this has been reported uh, in various places. The New York Times uh, wrote an article about it. The Guardian has had several articles about it. When the governor thought perhaps there might have been a primary he had to run, the lobby groups for the nursing homes and the healthcare facilities really stepped up. Uh, Leading Age is another lobby group that represents many nursing homes in the state of New York. 
the Greater New York Hospital Association represents hundreds of healthcare providers. Uh, they provided him with somewhere around $2 million that went directly uh, into the, from what I understand and what's been reported, the general democratic fund, which uh, he had then uh, access to. But even if you, if, if you take that information and couple it with the, the governor's history with respect to enforcement by his Department of Health with respect to nursing homes, I mean, the story pretty much comes together. He's never been interested in holding nursing homes uh, to the standard that the law requires. In fact, when the immunity came up and he was the first governor in the country to jump on the immunity bandwagon and allow the New York State Healthcare Association to write the law. And after he wrote it, you then saw other states jumping on this immunity bandwagon. And the selling point is we need to protect the frontline workers. We need to protect the workers at the nursing homes because there's going to be an avalanche of lawsuits because of COVID. Well, guess what? There was no avalanche of lawsuits from COVID. There wouldn't have been one for numerous other legal reasons. And frontline healthcare workers, nurses, certified nursing assistants, physician's assistants, nurse practitioners, don't get sued in those lawsuits. And I've brought thousands of them. I've never sued a nurse in a lawsuit in 17 years of doing these cases. Why? Because the law says that the institution is responsible for negligence. They're responsible for any individual. So the selling point on the immunity, unless you're a lawyer and you're in the game, you wouldn't know that it wasn't true. So look, a lot of this is uh, sounds like your standard sleaze that goes on in state capitals and in Washington um, all the time. Big money talks, big money hires lobbying firms that have political influence and often get uh, results from public officials. I guess my question is, is there evidence of a crime here, of a federal crime that the federal prosecutors are going to be able to dig into? Or is does this fall under the category of, you know, the kind of political influence buying we see all the time that never quite rises to the criminal level? If you're asking me to make a prediction because I don't have all the evidence and I haven't seen the investigation, I doubt it's going to rise to the level of the crime. So then what are the prosecutors doing? I think they're doing this investigation uh, for a number of reasons. I think the, uh, the you know, the, the political situation out there today, uh, especially in New York State, you have many, many families. I've spoken to hundreds of them uh, since COVID began who've lost loved ones, who've been given absolutely no explanation for why their loved one uh, died, how they died, who was responsible. So I think there's a lot of pressure to look into exactly what happened. If they start to look at the money trail and if they start to put together why some of these decisions might have been made, perhaps you might be able to link uh, some sort of pay for play uh, scenario here. But like you said, that goes on all the time in Albany. It goes on all the time in Washington, D.C. I do not think you're going to see the governor charged with a crime. I do not think you're going to see any of his staff members charged with a crime. I think it's going to be a stain on his administration. Uh, I think it's something that will always be looked at as a colossal failure 
by the Cuomo administration, but I don't think anybody's getting indicted for this. So in the so in the meantime, setting aside criminal investigations, I mean there is legislative activity uh, taking place, and there is a push to take away Cuomo's emergency powers, right. and I think uh, possibly also to repeal the immunity law. Is that right? Yes. So you have really bipartisan support now uh, in the New York State uh, Senate to take away some of Cuomo's power. So you have Democrats in the Senate, Republicans in the Senate, who uh, I believe next week are looking to put uh, a bill to the floor uh, whereby a committee is going to be established. Uh, If Cuomo wants to issue an executive order that's going to change an existing law, it has to be approved by the legislature. Uh, Whether or not that's going to pass, who knows? There is not, to my understanding at this point, a concomitant bill in the Assembly, but they're looking to rein some of his power in. There's there's no question about that. As far as the immunity uh, is concerned, the immunity, uh, just by way of background, initially, uh, as I said, was drafted mostly by the Greater New York Hospital Association. The trial lawyers and the people who, the the lawyers who represent families had very little input into that. And that law was very, very broad. And it was made uh, as part of the New York State budget in 2020. It was then codified into Article D uh, of the the health law. But basically, it provided immunity to facilities for anything, whether it was specifically related to COVID or not. So, for example, if somebody uh, is in a nursing home and is unattended and falls and breaks their hip uh, in March, April, May, June of 2020, the nursing home is not going to be civilly liable for that, even though COVID may have played no role. That law was then amended uh, as of August 7th, 2020, whereby it was made uh, limited to COVID. Although if you read the law, uh, it's poorly worded, it's poorly drafted, and it hasn't been litigated yet. So we don't know uh, how a judge would rule on the immunity part two, but suffice it to say, I'm very confident that every nursing home that defends a negligence case under the new immunity law is going to assert it as an affirmative defense. There is a big push now to to get it repealed. I I think this groundswell uh, between the attorney general's report, what we're hearing now about the uh, the numbers, the attorney general uh, getting involved, the FBI getting involved, I think there's a good chance that the immunity law may be repealed, just as Connecticut did a couple of weeks ago. Is it, is it, let me just one quick follow-up question. Is it, because I think some listeners may be wondering this, is it plausible to you uh, that in the, you know, kind of crisis atmosphere, uh, you know, when COVID hit, that policymakers and elective office holders, people like Cuomo said, we have to do everything we possibly can. Better to do too much, just throw everything up against the wall and see what sticks. If mistakes get made, so be it, but better safe than sorry. Is that plausible to you as a rationale for, for some of this conduct? Yeah, you know, it, it is plausible. And uh, if, if we didn't have all the other evidence, uh, I might be more apt to believe that it was all done in good faith. Yeah. But unfortunately, there, there's too much information that mitigates against that. Listen, In the early days of the pandemic, uh, we're talking February, March, April, May, nobody knew what was happening. The the nursing homes were ill-prepared. There was no PPE. Uh, More importantly, the nursing home staff wasn't trained on how to use PPE. I spoke to many frontline workers 
who, who contacted me, who told me that things such as basic hand washing and gown changing weren't even being followed in, in many nursing homes. So you did have chaos. I think the immunity law that was written, however, was written so broadly that it was really used by uh, the, the healthcare lobby, the nursing home lobby, to basically get something they've been dying to get for years, which is to be free from civil liability for negligent care. That's why if you read it, it's so broad that it's absolutely ridiculous, okay? It, it can be literally applied to any situation, even if COVID was not uh, truly involved in the negligence. So while I believe certainly could have been done in good faith, in the end, when I evaluate it as a whole, I think they just use it as an opportunity. Well, one way to look at it is that, you know, in that period, March and April, when New York was right at the epicenter of the COVID uh, epidemic, it was a crisis atmosphere where nobody was quite sure uh, what the best steps to take and they were trying everything they could. And then at the same time, Cuomo is getting all this great PR for his press conferences. He's on a high. It ultimately wins him an Emmy. And they, the the, the Cuomo people, don't want any stain, uh, anything that's going to take away from this high he's going through politically, in which people were actually talking about him, having him run for president in no 2020, uh, you know, replace all the primary candidates with Andrew Cuomo. So at that point, they say, let's not talk about the nursing home issue it is confusing what DeRosa said about they didn't want the Justice Department jumping on it, but probably because they figured that if they released the full data about all the nursing home deaths, which were twice as large as they were publicly admitting, the New York legislators would get up in arms and that that would provoke the Justice Department to look even more closely at what they were doing. Right? I, I guess that, that's that's possible. But again, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about uh, a Department of Health that was on a daily basis calculating these numbers. Uh, they knew that the numbers weren't what they were uh, saying that, that, that they were. And in fact, most other states reported the deaths to include nursing home residents who were either suspected for COVID, were test, tested positive, then were transferred to another facility like a hospital and died. So everybody, most everywhere else in the country, the deaths were being ca calculated that way. So why the governor and why his staff decided to conceal this information or to create this void to quote, you know, Governor Cuomo, that that's his sort of euphemism for this. We created a void. Well, if the Department of Justice was going to investigate you, wouldn't you rather be on the right side of things and tell the truth? But he hasn't called you up and threatened you in any way. No, and, and I can tell you that, that Ron Kim, who is really a, a a wonderful man. I, I've, I've been on uh, calls with him. He has uh, a personal stake, uh, so to speak, in, in, in the nursing home uh, uh, issue. You know, his, he had a family member uh, who was in a nursing home who died from COVID. And to attack Ron Kim, he, he's been in the legislature for eight years. He's a staunch supporter of the Safe Staffing Act. He's a staunch supporter of the Visitation Rights Act, which we are you know, pushing uh, on, on my committees to get passed because it can only help residents of nursing homes to attack him. And if the reports are true, I just don't get it. That's bad optics. I don't understand why he'd go after Ron Kim. 
Ron Tim is, has really done nothing but been supportive of all of the efforts of advocates for the elderly. And it makes no sense to me. All right. Well, uh, John Daly, I want to thank you for your insights into what is becoming a huge political and legal story. And um, we hope to stay in touch. As the Sounds good. Anytime. Be well, guys. Thanks a lot, John. Right. And I enjoy your I enjoy your podcast, by the way. Oh, oh great. great. I love it. It's awesome. Don't don't edit don't edit that, Eric. Keep that in. <laughs>